you know, my nose originally, when I kept saying no, was because I understood as much as I could as an outsider what the marathon story was. It did not have a great reputation. The service was, I mean, the only word I have, Scott, to be honest, was terrible. I knew I was going into some turbulence. To be very open with you, I didn't know how bad it was until I got here. And, uh, you know, we had to undergo a lot of work. I had to be honest with the market. I think my very first interview was like a week or two after taking the post. I told the market very openly, look, this is a significant change management process. Like we had to rip this thing down to the frame and restart to give us a shot at success. And right. we underwent that. We underwent that process. So we took a lot of jabs. We took a lot of criticism. All of them deserved. <laughs> we just weren't good yeah. enough. We don't deal with that anymore. You know, we still have some people in the marketplace we left bad impressions with and who are scorned. And that's on us now to overcome that. But we're nowhere near the same company we were. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Today on the show, I have Albert Kolu. Albert is the president of Marathon Mortgage. And him and I, we go back a long ways when I worked at Mortgage Architects. And he's got a very extensive resume in the mortgage industry. And so I love these conversations with presidents and CEOs to like understand how they work, how they got to where they were. And we went through his journey of the different businesses that he's been a part of and built. And then I'd ask them like, so what did you learn here? What did you learn there? And so for me, fantastic conversation with Albert. Also in this episode, I talked to Ruben Gorsh from Deeded about transparency in the closing process. Ruben is the founder of Deeded. We will jump into that. Before we do, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform designed specifically for Canadian borrowers. It is extremely easy to use, which is what I like about it. It's got some really smart features and they're continually adding to the smart features, which I really like. So one of them is that as you're filling out the app, it automatically knows what documents you need to get, sends them a notification email. Hey, here's what we need. Load them to the portal. We have found that more and more often our clients are actually uploading docs along with the apps, which is great. It's got some smart submission notes. So as you're hitting submit to the lender, it pulls the key data from the app because you may not realize this, but on the lender side, it always looks different. Like if you sat in the lender's desk for a day, be like at 10 different lenders, you're like, wow, how do I even underwrite? Because they're all different as you can imagine. And so making it simple for them means you're going to get more yeses. Check them out at lendescom slash Finmo and check out this conversation with Albert. Hey, Albert, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Scott. Great to be here. So, hey, I've known you for a long time and you have quite a very extensive resume in terms of the things that you've led and built over the years in the mortgage industry. And so maybe we'll just start back at the beginning for who doesn't know who you are. Like, how did you get into the mortgage biz? And then we're going to you know, talk about now today, you're the CEO of Marathon, but there was a path to get there. So start me at the beginning. The very beginning, the the genesis. Yeah, the very. Of the be I just think oh, yes, the very. Wow. I'm just curious how you got into more. Most people when they're in kindergarten don't say, "Hey, I'm going to get into mortgages." We don't even know what that is as a little kid. So, yeah, how did you get is, there? Yeah, complete fluke. You know, it's interesting because uh, there was a real estate convention or trade show of sorts in January in Banff, like 21 years ago, 22 years ago, I think it was. I was actually the VP of a software company, just a young guy, younger yeah. guy. And anyhow, long story short, I was, uh, you know, one of the exhibitors at the trade show and I walked by a booth and I saw the title on this booth and I asked him, well, what the heck is that? What's a mortgage broker? I literally, I literally right. asked, what is a mortgage broker? And we got into that conversation. The trade show sucked because the weather was terrible. So I ended up befriending this individual. 
And uh, unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize I was being softly interviewed. I got a call two weeks, three weeks later to uh, gauge my interest in the industry. So I naturally said, look, apart from having a mortgage, I don't know anything about mortgages. And uh, yeah, next thing I knew, I was uh, in the mortgage space, learning by baptism by fire. And, uh, and so where, did you start off as a broker or a lender? Where did you start? I actually started off as a broker. Looking back now, it's kind of funny. I was managing a uh, an approval center, if you will. Uh, so an underwriting hub that had some right. direct to consumer while working with some brokers. That was my first gig. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And then, okay, so then you also created a company called Argentum, right? Which was a Correct. brokerage. And it was a very fast growing brokerage that ended up being, you know, partnered, merged, bought. I don't know what the situation, but you guys basically somehow it become part of MA. And prior to Argentum, were you working at Home Trust or something? Or were you a BDM? Like, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. You know, so it was a relatively short hiatus on the broker side. And for whatever reason, the type of business we were generating at that time was uh, very Home Trust driven. And anyhow, I got to a bunch of folks there and befriended them more, more specifically, Diana Soloway, who's just a you know, wonderful individual. Just she threw out very casually, you ever thought about coming on the lending side? And here again, I'm like, you know, I didn't know very much about mortgages. I wouldn't say I was a pro at that point in my career. So anyhow, I took the gig. My first job was essentially a regional sales manager, uh, helping out obviously the BDMs across the country at that time. Actually, more specifically, it was Ontario. That's not true. It was only the Ontario group. Uh, and I was very fortunate where the senior management at that time, Jerry Solway, took a shine to me and really taught me a lot and found myself evolving from sales to operations to underwriting. I had my hands in product design. It was really good gig, Scott. Um, and how and long then, did you do that? Oh, that was, I mean, quite a while for me at my age. Was, I think it was about two years. And then um, I was very, very, very lucky. I uh, had run into First National down in Mexico, I was asked to speak while I was at Home Capital Group. Uh, it's kind of funny now looking back, Scott, because the topic is what the heck was really alternative mortgages? It was sort of like this fancy handle back then. Right. You know, what are alternative mortgages? What's the bad cachet around them? So we did that. Anyhow, I must have struck a chord with the first national folks because at that time they were uh, trying to figure out the Excalibur space. Mm. They were just about to go into that. So I got a phone call literally, I think, two or three days after Mexico to see if I would literally go across the street, have a cup of coffee to understand, um, or at least to gauge my interest. You know, next thing I knew, I was running the Excalibur program and, and had just a blast doing it. So, okay, so you went from Home Trust to Excalibur. I'm going to pause there for a second. So yeah, I want sure. to ask you about what was the best failure that you learned something from or lesson that you got from being in that business development role? I'd like to pause at each stage yeah. of your journey and then ask about either a failure that you learned something from or a lesson that you've now taken with you in your current role. What's something you picked up? From yeah, being a yeah. I don't know if it's a single thing, Scott. Um, I, I can say certainly that as soon as you asked me, a couple things out of the hip was number one, I learned very quickly, don't overestimate relationships. Number two, don't measure people by the word, just measure them by their performance and or actions. I'd say those two things really stick out as prevalent lessons or reaffirmations right. at least. Yeah, yeah. sometimes it's lessons we relearn. So when you say learn to overestimate relationships, can you give me an example of what you mean by like? Yeah, yeah you absolutely. Look, I think it happens still today just as much as it happened then. I think there's a tendency, and I'm not just aiming this at the mortgage industry or the mortgage broker channel. I, I find it with other relationships I have in other industries where, you know what, I'm going to start a business. I got some great relationships and business is going to flow through the door. And or I'm going to start a lender. The broker's going to line up at the door. Or I'm going to start selling freezies. And I know all these people, so they're going to line up at the door. And those aren't necessarily true. In fact, I would actually go one step further to say that not only is it misguided, but it's immensely arrogant. You may have a good relationship with someone, but it doesn't mean that you're going to displace a relationship they have with others. You're not a singular relationship. 
you have to right. earn every inch. So, right. you know, to quantify that in our space, Scott, like, I mean, just because I'm a lender and I happen to have great relationships with a number of brokers, but those brokers may be using home capital groups, since we mentioned them, or First National. They're not going to disrupt their life because, you know, oh, well, I know Albert, I got a great relationship with them and start sending them business. And I think if you go into any business endeavor, assuming business is just going to drop on your lap, I think you better find something right. else to do very quickly. Right. Okay. I can see how that would. So if you're at home trust, you've got these brokers you work with that already have a relationship with you and also a relationship mm -hmm. with home trust. Then you go to Excalibur and they're like, yeah, I like you, Albert, but like, to get them to change their patterns and their habits and their under, like, as you said, you got to earn the trust to do that thing again. Like it wasn't like, it was Absolutely. just automatic. Let's put it this way. I think that the reset button gets hit anytime you have a new endeavor. I think all the relationships do, at least in my opinion, is they at least give you an opportunity to get in your foot in the door, at least explain what it is you're up to. And it might, it just might incite trial, but it's no guarantee or assurance that, you're suddenly going to rack up the business. I think that's incredibly right, right. miscalculated. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of a quote, success is never owned. It's leased and rent is due every day. It's kind of this idea that you can't just call on all your past successes to keep, you've got to keep earning it. And uh, I like that concept. So from there, was Argentum the next kind of big yeah, venture? Yeah. Yeah, Tell me about so Argentum, I, where the idea came to create a brokerage. And, you, know, <laughs> you know, it was funny because what the idea was just basically start with a fire. I always had this entrepreneurial fire in me, Scott, even before I got into this industry. I you and me both, summer. brother. Yeah, just, uh, you know, it's hard to shake in a lot of ways. So I thought, listen, yeah. I'm a younger guy. If there's ever a chance I'm going to take a leap of faith, this is it. But having said that, you know, you always put a business plan and those business plans have a large undercurrent of confidence in your ability to succeed. But I, I mean, quite honestly, did I imagine that it'd be the fastest growing company at the time when I built it? No, I didn't. I, if you would have said to me, you're going to have, you know, 600 brokers within 12 months of opening, I'd say you're absolutely nuts. But that's what we were very, very fortunate to accomplish. We were growing that particular business in a time that wasn't exactly the most um, red hot market. So that, right. that caught the attention. And therefore, we had a few calls that uh, expressed interest in buying the company. And in a few cases, I said, no, I just felt it was too early. But when mortgage architects called, at that moment, there was a rather compelling story. And by the way, the compelling story wasn't because the check was bigger. The checks were all intents and purposes, kind of the same. Right. Uh, it was something else that sort of drove me towards that transaction. But it was, I'll tell you, look, looking back now, it was just a phenomenal pleasure to serve that company as a president for the years I did. Uh, just, well, I mean, that's where you and I met, right? That's I mean, where we met originally, there. way back in the day. Yeah, yeah I remember yeah, that. I was so, very, uh, very lucky to have that gig, for sure. Yeah. What was the lesson or takeaway that you got from building that brokerage? What was like a business principle that either you re-solidified or reaffirmed or discovered in the process of building the brokerage and then eventually, you know, selling it and stuff. Yeah. So a couple of quick lessons. One is more from the practicum, right? Don't rest your laurels on your business plan, particularly as a startup. Make sure you're revisiting that plan like as often as possible. Don't get uh, arrogant in terms of assuming you had all the right assumptions. Stretch and test your assumptions. Make sure that you're moving in the direction in all facets of that plan, whether it's profitability, margins, whatever the case may be, milestones, you got to stay on top of it and you have to be agile enough, particularly the startup, to make sure that you're responsibly working towards the end result. That's number one. Number two, it's the same lesson I would say today. I don't really care what it is you're selling. It all starts with having the right people in the right seats. Nothing is possible. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. That's what I'm learning. I'm like, oh my gosh, the right people. And then you may have the right person. I've had this recently where just wrong spot. And I'm like, 
Yeah. And you move them and you're like, oh, okay, this person can really excel in this spot. I know that if you put me in the wrong spot on the bus, I would be exited off the bus pretty darn quick. I'd be like, hey, Scott, you are not the bookkeeper. You should not be like, you know, you need to get either find a new role or get off the bus. And so that's really good. You said you need to test your assumptions. So this is a little bit of, you know, for my own benefit as a new guy building a brokerage, what was one of the things that surprised you most about running and building a brokerage? Boy, that is a heck of a question. The most surprising thing about building a brokerage, on the positive side, I was quite struck by the willingness of people to be part of that particular story, if it was articulated well enough, right? So as I said, I did not expect to have that kind of growth inside of a 12-month period, 14-month period. Yeah. So that was pretty surprising. But the other thing that was interesting is just how much the industry got away from us so quickly. I'll explain that. You know, it seemed like this industry went from paying mortgage agents and brokers, you know, 60, 40s, 80, 20s, 75, 25s to like 90, 95s, like overnight. And right. uh, in some cases, flat fees. But I, I think what I learned from that is it was just, it was shocking how many of these people are brand new entrants to the industry that came with this sense of entitlement. That, right. You know, so I had to sort of recalibrate my, even my own recruiting and my market segment in terms of what I want mm-hmm. to to grow with. So I was a little surprised by that, but I was equally surprised in a positive way of just fantastic brokers that decided to be part of that particular company, how good they were. I was actually reminded, no, actually that's not even the right word. I wasn't reminded. I was actually, I learned very clearly that there is, regardless of what you hear and read in, in our industry, there is a clear difference between a broker that does it right and a broker who does not. And right. it is a massive delta. It's not subtle. And I learned a lot through that chapter of my life. And I you know, I try to carry that with me today. Right. Okay. So then the next, you were at Verico as president, right? And Correct. so, you know, uh, championing that. And so how did you go from MA to Verico? I'm curious. You know, it's funny. I, I was looking for something a little bit different. You know, if I'm being very transparent and open with you, I, I actually got to a point, Scott, where I wasn't sure that I wanted to be in the industry anymore. Right. Honest to goodness, I thought, you know, maybe there's something else. Maybe, I, you know, I can translate some of these things that I've learned and these skills that I've acquired to something completely different. And I won't bore you or get into it in this call unless you probe, but someone said I was, uh, you know, probably making a bad mistake. They felt I had something to offer still and, and to, in some respects to the industry. So anyhow, long story short, as it turned out, I got very fortunate. I crossed paths with, uh, with you know, Colin, who was one of the founders of Verico. And uh, yeah, we just started to talk about sort of what he needed, what I needed, and uh, made it happen. And it was just a phenomenal chapter of my life, to be frank with you. So Colin and John Kelly and the team of all the folks at Verical built that company. My obligation and my responsibility was to help it grow to the next level. So they really enjoyed a really nice level of success. I think Verical speaks for itself, to be honest with you. But there wasn't that jump in terms of growing the business. So that was my main focus. Uh, I was very, very lucky to do that. That that was on the heels and backs of a phenomenal team over there uh, during my time that helped us do that. That success garnered some interest. So we were acquired by the M3 Mortgage Group. Right. Okay. So what was your biggest lesson? So you went from like working as a broker, being a business development guy, starting a broker. These are all like level up in terms of complexity, in terms of how many people you need to manage, in terms of to me, that he seems to be getting more complex. Then you go from, yeah. well, I guess MA is sort of a brokerage, but so is Vericle as a network. So now you have a network. What was your biggest lesson from being the president of the network of Vericle when you were there? The expectations were different. The underlying um, 
obviously the underlying business is the same, whether you're a full service brokerage, you're a franchise, you're a licensee network, at Vericle was, the underlying business is the same. What changes is the way or the manner in which you describe value. The value proposition arguably is different. If you're a full service brokerage, I mean, your value proposition is X. If you're a franchisee, it's, you know, your proposition is Y. And when you're in a licensee network like Verico was, it's a very different value proposition. So it's not to say that you were justifying your existence, but you always had to make sure that you knew exactly who you were. And once you figured out who you were, then you can actually segment and actually build the business around those fundamentals. And the people who are actually a good match for that. Absolutely. Because part of it is, is that you've got to attract the right, you know, kind of people. That's something I've been learning is like, we don't want everybody. We just, there's certain type of people that are a good fit and other ones that aren't and we're okay with, you know, no thanks next. And so I think it's understanding kind of who your avatar is. And so you're right, your avatar for when you were running Verico was different than your avatar when you're running MA. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think it's extremely well said. I think the beauty of the industry though, Scott, is I don't think that one- There's diversity. Be, there's yeah. diversity. I don't think one, yeah. one company should argue that their model is best because of everything you just articulated, right? I think the models fit at different times. You can't um, just for lack of better comparisons around, you can't be unfair to a mortgage group or let's even say mortgage architects and compare them to Verico. These are not the same offerings, no. nor is Verico to them. You know, So Verico was always predicated on your brand, your business, your way sort of concept. But if you're looking for real robust business support in terms of payroll and other full service models, Verico was not a home for you. That makes sense. And, yeah. and so understanding your avatar, your offering for that avatar is important. Okay, so then so where did you go after Verico? Yeah, well, so after Verico, um, there was no design around this, you know, so, you know, Colin and the entire Verico team, in fairness, we were very successful at building that business to the next level. So we garnered interest in terms of being acquired. So what transcended from there was the, obviously you go through the, the acquisition process, which is quite complex, but M3 Mortgage Group stepped out as being the group that was selected to sell that organization too. And then I was running Vericle still, you know, post-acquisition, what I didn't see coming, which was very nice, very flattering, was that uh, that particular group felt that I had a value proposition that would allow the company to grow. And so mm -hmm. I had all the brand leaders, if you will. So, you know, the presidents and CEOs as they were for Verico, Invis MI, Mortgage Alliance, they all reported into me. So I was overseeing that operation. Yeah, that was my last gig before Marathon. So then, okay, so you're now you go from like one network to basically essentially multiple because M3 has multiple networks within that brand. You so now what prompted you to get into Marathon? So this is where you are today. And I want to, I do want to talk more about Marathon and I messaged you. I'm like, Hey, a bunch of my agents are like, Hey, we want to get set up a Marathon. And so that yeah. kind of reconnected. It was like, Oh, Hey, so tell me about what prompted you to go from there to something like Marathon. <laughs> well, I gotta be honest. Listen, I truly Scott wanted to step away from the industry. And I don't mean that in the You just can't way. leave, man. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I couldn't, I, you know, and I don't mean that. Like I, I have this affinity for this industry that I just can't shake off. And, uh, you know, which I think says a lot about the people in this industry. I really, truly, at that point in my life, COVID had just hit. There were some personal things going on. I thought, you know what, I'm in a financial position where I think I just want to step back. I just want to step back. And, you know, my true passion, I, you know, and this is going to sound so corny and cheesy because you hear these all the time on these talk shows and whatnot. Is I love sitting down with entrepreneurs or business and saying, listen, here's a perspective. I'm not saying this is the direction you have to go, but here's some things I would think about. Here's some ways to retool and recalibrate and rejig your business to... You know, whatever yeah. that bucket is. So, I mean, it, it was all consulting. What I didn't expect is when I parted ways with M3, 
I didn't expect to get seven consulting gigs uh, within the first week. And it, was, it was incredible. It was just a great experience. Anyway, getting to the marathon side of things, when I got a call uh, a couple months after I started consulting to determine whether or not I was interested, I will tell you very honestly, are you crazy? Not a chance. I said no three times. I said not right. a chance, not that company, which we can dive into. So anyhow, obviously, I eventually turned no into a yes. And I will tell you, it had nothing to do with economics. It had nothing to do with, wow, they just umped the ante and paid me more. It was nothing of the sort. My gravitational pull was very different. Right. That's Interesting. Okay. So yeah. you started at Marathon. And so then walk me through kind of when you got there, what you found and where you are today, because the <laughs> feedback that I've been getting anyway, is that it's definitely been lots of improvements. So talk to me about kind of what you found and then what things you've been working on. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that piece, because it was a hell of a ride. It has been a rough ride. So look, I mean, you know, my nose originally when I kept saying no is because I understood as much as I could as an outsider what the marathon story was. It did not have a great reputation. The service was I mean, the only word I have, Scott, to be honest, was terrible. I knew I was going into some turbulence. To be very open with you, I didn't know how bad it was until I got here. And, uh, you know, we had to undergo a lot of work. I had to be honest with the market. I think my very first interview was like a week or two after taking the post. I told the market very openly, look, this is a significant change management process. Like we had to rip this thing down to the frame and restart to give us a shot at success. And right. we underwent that. We underwent that process. So. We took a lot of jabs. We took a lot of criticism. All of them deserved. <laughs> we just weren't good yeah. enough. We don't deal with that anymore. You know, we still have some people in the marketplace we left bad impressions with and who are scorned. And that's on us now to overcome that. But we're nowhere near the same company we were. In fact, right. I think your agents are a testament to that. We don't hear that anymore. What we hear more often is not really sure what the heck you guys did over there, but this is a completely different experience than where you started two and a half years ago. Right. Just so g- give me an example of something that you saw that like what was one of the first things you realized we had to like make an adjustment to or you know yeah. whether it was process wise or what was something that you've recognized immediately needed to fix well one of the first questions you asked me was one of the things i learned and my response to you was any business you run is on the backs of great people so the first right. thing i recognized is we needed to make people feel valued respected and appreciated period we needed to change the dynamic of the culture And then what we did internally is it was on me to make sure that we had a rally cry of sorts, right? Everyone understood what we're trying to do. But unfortunately, to get there, I had to share the harsh realities of this is how we're perceived. Uh, Here's what it's going to be like. Here's why business is not going to just line up at the door because I've arrived and I have relationships. And this is what we're going to have to undertake. And we're going to have to be resilient. We're going to have to be thick skinned because we're going to take more jobs because we're not ready for the market the way that we should be. And we're not going to build this organization on excuses. If we have a broker call us or send us an email because our service was terrible or we made a mistake, we're not going to sit there and argue about it. Just fess up, own it, apologize, make it right, and explain what you're trying to do so it doesn't happen again. Right. And that's the approach we took. So that was the very first bucket was to change the people and the culture. Okay. Right. Was there and any then, process changes? I'm curious. Okay, people, oh, I, I, I agree. So yeah. Give me an example of a process change because I like getting into the weeds a little bit of like a example of a process change that you thought was needed to improve things. Well, the first thing is, I mean, as you know, I, I always find it interesting in this business, Scott, that everyone sells themselves on service. And, and our view is this, is that service isn't a selling feature, it's table stakes. You don't have good service, you don't have a shot. Right. I just believe that. I mean, right or wrong, that's, that's just our belief here. So when you talk about processes, we have to rip it all out. 
if you cannot underwrite a file and if you can't communicate effectively with your brokers, well, then my goodness, what are we doing here? So the very first thing we had to do was assess our capabilities to be scalable and to underwrite files in a way that makes sense. You know, without getting into too weedy, we had systems that antiquated. 70% of our underwriting process was actually done manually, which was absurd. So a broker could send a file to Marathon before my time and wait up to six, seven days for an answer. And that answer could be, Scott, we don't have a deal here. I mean, it's right. the worst slow no you could ever give a broker. Right. Yeah, slow no is terrible versus terrible. a fast no you can live with. You can be like, okay, yeah. I can move on from that. But Completely yeah. incourteous. So we changed that and we realized that the way that we were doing business was just completely erroneous, right? We needed to put right. a you know a reliable broker portal in that communicated, allowed brokers to do the things that they're doing. So we had to bring all these things together and make sure that they were working in a way that allowed us to live up to our promise of delivering good service, exceptional service more specifically. It took us a long time to do that. But here right. we are today, right? So Right. And making a huge shift. So then the thing that I've found interesting about lenders is that obviously got the broker relationship side, the underwriting side, but then you've got the whole funding. Oh, you've yeah. got to be able to make money. And so what's something you learned about that side of the business that you didn't know or were surprised by now that you're gone from like, because you essentially did almost mm -hmm. all the jobs you could do on the broker side, mm -hmm. right? Like pretty much every role. But now this is, I'm sure you have lots of conversations and meetings around, I don't know what you, what you call them, your treasury people or your like, mm -hmm. What would you call the people that kind of run that part of the business? What would you, we, you, know, you know, we simplify. We just call them finance at the moment. Because finance, so, yeah. So finance yeah. people. So like when they're exactly. talking about, hey, we're going to get this funder, and we're going to this is. So yeah. what's something you learned about working with you know the funding partners that you didn't know from your previous roles? Well, I always suspected it to be highly intricate, and highly complex. But uh, you know what I came to know very quickly is that it was far more complex than I recalled in my last lending gig. In fact, as a very side tag, and I think it's one of the areas that I think that uh, this industry would do well by to teach the brokers. And I don't—I honestly do not mean that condescendingly. I think it's an element of the business that's sort of like this shadow market or this dark room that no one really black understands. Yeah. It's like this right. black box. And I think if brokers understand that, I think it makes everybody in the whole value chain a little bit better at what they do. But aside from that, to answer the question, the complexity was intense. And I think being back in the lending side, I think a lot of myths were dispelled for me. So I'll give you an example of a myth I heard for years. You know, there's always this concept that dealing with uh, major institutions that buy your mortgages, so to speak, you know, they're very rigid, they're not flexible, they don't really care. And, and that's not true. It's not true at all. In fact, what we found is once we conveyed our story and where we're headed, that was one of my first tasks. I wanted to make sure all our stakeholders knew exactly what the heck we're trying to do here. They mm -hmm. were completely the 180 from what was described generally. They were incredibly flexible, patient, supportive, viewed us as a startup again, even though we were 12 years old. So I guess it's a long way of saying that I think it was unfair and erroneous to categorize all financial institutions, major institutions as being you know, lethargic and bureaucratic and inflexible. That was a very pleasant surprise, Scott, to be honest with you. They're, they're great rallies right. behind Well, us. I think it's, the, if it's a business for them too, right? So they want good Absolutely. partners and like, and then you've got to work within the regulatory framework that is put in place by a third party. So it's like, if it's like a football game, somebody else has made the rules and sometimes they change the rules and, you know, they don't talk to the participants. Like, hey, the rules are changing. It's like, dang it. What Have you noticed anything since you've been at the helm there, like anything that's changed on the regulatory side that's affected you guys? Or I'm just curious about, you know, I don't know the timelines of some of these changes, but is there anything that you've seen that has affected the lending side of the business at all? 
I don't know. I would say regulatory. I mean, the same things that your channel, like the broker channel is impacted by, we are, you know, so little changes to the stress tests and those, I mean, we're all subject to those things. But what the brokers may not see or appreciate is that this thing is moving at the speed of light. So there's a lot of intricacies in a residential mortgage underwriting, right? So for instance, you know, an arm up could be a hundred pages plus, right? And it's got all these right. little nuances, all these little zigs and zags and those things change very frequently you know covid was upon us and then there was a massive change in terms of how income was looked at or markets were willing to go into or not go into when i say we the collective we like institutions buying this commercial yeah. paper it was really i don't want to say overwhelming but you need to be on your game the changes were fast and furious so that was something that it wasn't the fun part of the job it was a necessary evil but the challenge that sort of trickled out of the doors and it's the same challenge any lender would have is how do you articulate those in a way that's salient and clear for the broker so you're not confusing them? I right. mean, I think we all need a PhD to understand most of the rate sheets out there now, right? Like, I mean, there, yeah. there used to be, here's your one through five, you're maybe a seven and it 10. It was so easy. Our, it was so when easy. When I, I started in 2006, it was so easy. If you're listening to this and you started since then, I, you know, it's the reality. But yeah, yeah. it was so much easier. Now it's a game of Tetris, right? Like, wait a minute, I yeah. think this is my rate, right? So anyway, that's what I found in terms of the regulatory space. It was more the micro than the macro a lot of times yeah. for us. Right. I want to ask you two questions. Where do you see the future sure. that you guys are going? And then where do you see the market in terms of like where the challenges and opportunities will be? So maybe you can answer either direction. You can go either marathon first or market or whatever you prefer. Yeah, you know what? I'll start with the market because it you know dovetails nicely into what we think in Marathon. So, like, this is a twelve-year-old company, right? Most people don't know that, but we sort of view ourselves as a two-year-old company because uh, right. we really, we really are a startup. So, I say that as a preface to what we feel about the market because we feel that in order for us to grow in accordance to our business plan, we're sort of insulated from what the market conditions are. We're not a company that needs to generate ten to fifteen billion dollars a year just to hold our book size. Like we're not, right. we don't have those challenges, and I don't envy that position at this point. So, for us to grow responsibly, we still feel the market can allow us to do that. Now, where do we feel the market is? I will tell you, I think you know this about me anyway, Scott, I think a lot of the stuff you hear out there is exaggerated and embellished, and I think it's sensationalized. Mm -hmm. I think Canadians are smarter than the media gives them credit for. I think that uh, Canadians were confused not so long ago, and the reason why I say that, I think somehow it was transplanted in their brain that when they heard rates, you know, fixed rates specifically, were doubling and tripling, they just associated that to mean that their payments were doubling and tripling. Anyone right. in the space right, which are good mortgage brokers, we knew that wasn't the case. And I feel that Canadians are starting to, as we speak right now, are doing the back of the envelope saying, wait a minute now, hold on here. So my payment was a thousand. Okay. Yeah. So I don't have a 179. I'm now 479 or 489 or whatever the hell it is. So my payment is now maybe 1300. Okay. Yeah, it sucks. My payment went up, but you know what? I don't need a $10 caramel macchiato every day. I'll just park that because right. my home ownership is taking precedent. And I think Canadians are starting to adjust. And I'll tell you, to bring that even home more so, if you remember the first time the MQR, the stress test was implemented, it was nuts. If you remember that November, December, January, that mm -hmm. after the implementation, it was nuts. Yeah. Right. And then it cooled off. And then what happened? June again of that year that followed the MQR, it started to warm up because I think Canadians adjusted and said, wait a minute now. This isn't right. so bad. I think that's where we are now. I think there's a lot of conversation around things like, oh, well, you know, there's supply side. And I don't, I don't, I don't actually think that's real. Even if there is a supply side, you're only focused on the purchase transaction when you're speaking in that manner. 
I think there's a lot of clients that need brokers to understand the value of a right. switch or transfer. The, you still need to refinance. You still need to renew. All those things are still static. Right. Isn't that the truth? Okay. So then where do you guys see, like, as uh, Wayne Gretzky used to skate where the puck is going, where are you guys heading with Marathon? What we're trying to do here is we're just trying to recognize exactly who we are to any given broker at any given time, right? So we're not here to try and get everyone's business a ridiculous, arrogant approach, but we're trying to find that blend that works for us. So, you know, we feel we've got a really good balance between really good service rates, comp, to at least spike the interest of the brokers. But, you know, we're trying to accentuate some of the nuances that we do well. Like we do a lot of switch transfer business because of the way we design that product. And we do a lot of really good insured business, not because we don't have an uninsured product. We do have an uninsured product, but we are, I don't know what the word is. I would say we're probably a little bit more lenient or flexible, Scott, because our general view is that if an insurer is going there, we're going there. So if someone in your market says, listen, uh, we want to go to Prince George, and it's insured, we're looking at that. Right. We're definitely, right? So we're not as picky. Uh, We're just predicated on making sure, you know, we fulfill home ownership or giving a financing option to someone who deserves it. I mean, it's really that simple. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Any last things I should have asked you that you think would be helpful for our listeners? I don't know. I think you did a good job because you always do. Um, Uh, I love asking questions, man. I write all this stuff down. It keeps me focused and I take notes as we chat. And thanks for taking the time to share your journey. I think that there's always lessons in everything. Like in all of the, I always think about all the different business ventures I've done. Some of them work, some of them are dumpster fires. And the dumpster fires, I just warm myself on until I moved on to the next one. Like, oh, I can cook some marshmallows here and then move on to the next you know, project. But I'm okay with the fact that you got to experiment, you got to learn. And that it's interesting to me that your whole trajectory in the industry, as well as, I mean, you're not even that old. Like I'm not old, but I don't think you're that old to have, have had this many different, you know, unique opportunities. And so it's going to be cool to see what you do with Marathon and as you continue to grow it. And I know that, as I said, our brokers have been excited to start using you guys a lot more. And so, you know, kudos to you and your team. So the rest of you, I know it's not just a you thing, because the thing I'm learning about running a brokerage is, man, team is everything. Like it is hands down the most important thing. It is for me, the centerpiece of any business period. You know, we can all get into these academic diatribes and make ourselves sound smart, but you know, the right people forget it. And I I will say this, you know, if you don't mind, I, you know, in today's world, particularly when you're in social media and, you know, it's really easy to sit on your phone and it's really, really easy for people to pile on people. I've noticed that not just in our industry, really easy to pile on people who are making genuine efforts to be better every day and who are open about being better every day. So you know, we had the shit kicked out of us, for lack of a better phrase, and we took it in stride. But I will say that, uh, you know, sometimes you get fixated on those that took early shots at you, even though you said we are not good enough openly. Right. But the most rewarding thing for us is to hear people that stood by us despite that. I, you know, I'm the first one to tell you we were not good enough, Scott. Yeah. Um, we are now. And uh, to that, I say those that did stand by us and supported us for whatever those reasons are. You can't thank them enough and not on a business level, but on a human level. Yeah, I totally agree. I think is that like, it's never done. And (laughs) as a guy who likes to create, like I actually would get bored if we got to a place where like, okay, then I'd be like, why am I here? But like, I feel like this has an endless amount of things to improve an endless amount of iterations with the brokerage. Like what I love about it is there's things I can do at scale with the brokers. I could never do as a broker, even as a coach. But now I'm like, oh, there's totally different it's like a whole new set of toys and tools have opened up to me. And I'm just like, let's go, baby. Like, I can't wait to see what the next, you know, 12 to 18 months brings. And, uh, you know, it's gonna be a wild ride. 
Well, you touched on mistakes, and I applaud you for that. I, I would say this, that if you're not making mistakes, that means you're sort of sitting on your laurels, and you're maybe it's even arrogant because it might be a symptom that you're not trying enough to be doing something differently or better. And if you're afraid to make mistakes and own them, entrepreneurship's probably not for you. Yeah, I think it's great. Well, Albert, thanks, man, for chatting with me. And, you know, hat tip to your people at Marathon. And um, maybe we'll see each other at one of these upcoming conferences one of these days. I hope so. Thanks, Scott, for doing this. Hey, thanks again. Hopefully you got some inspiration and insights from my conversation with Albert and what he's done over his career, as well as what he's been doing with Marathon. Thanks again, Albert, for coming to chat with me. I really enjoyed that conversation. In this next segment, I talked to Reuven from Deeded about transparency in the closing process. Hey, Reuven, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott. Great to be back on again. Let's go, baby. So talk to me about Deeded. What is Deeded in like 60 seconds? We're going to do a much longer show on this topic, but tell me about Deeded and then I want to jump into our topic today. For sure. So Deeded, essentially, uh, we built Deeded to reimagine the closing process for real estate and mortgages. We saw an opportunity a few years back that, you know, the closing process itself really hasn't been innovated on in a good 30, 40 years. Yes, you know, there's email and things like that that has come into the process, but closing a transaction or closing a mortgage is really a super important milestone for all of us. It's one of those things that we constantly miss and not necessarily, you know, see the value and the impact of what a great closing and a seamless and predictable closing experience can have on what our clients, what that borrower is going to remember at the end of the day. So that's why we created Dita to really make that seamless change and reimagine the way that we close a transaction. And we do that with a combination of great advanced technology, but also a really, really amazing team that's obsessed with customer experience. Right. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, I still see, you know, some of the lawyers like, you know, printing fees and like, why are you printing stuff? Like, you know, why are you actually printing documents if you don't need to anymore? So I love that your whole model. I know you guys have been growing like crazy since you hit the market. And so what topic do we want to jump into today? What would be the focus of our conversation? One of the things that we constantly hear from brokers and agents and clients alike is that closing feels like a black hole. And what I mean by that, Scott, is we're all consumers, right? I think we're all on Amazon, we're all on Uber, you know, we order our food, we order our groceries, everything's done online. And the one common thing that we all have now is this radical transparency, right? You order something from Amazon, how many times a year do you need to call to find out what your stuff is, right? You never do. Never, I got, never. I got something this afternoon and literally, you know, three minutes before the truck showed up, I got an alert, hey, it's coming to your door and I'm done. And I never have to worry about it. Why are we lacking that transparency when it comes to closing your client's transaction if you're a broker? Or why is your client kind of sitting in the dark, not knowing, you know, what's going on? Are they going to get a call? Is the deal going to close? When's it going to fund? Some of those fundamental questions we found just are lacking in today's closing experiences. Right. Yeah. And I agree with you. Like, it seems to me that we've talked about this before, but like, you know more about what's happening with your pizza, you know, when you order from Domino's than you do from your closing process. And that is a significantly less expensive, less stressful. If the pizza's off, you order another pizza. But when it comes to a mortgage transaction, it's important to make sure that there's good communication and that especially brokers and clients know what's going on. And there's this whole thing of the peak end rule, which is people only remember the peak, the high point of an experience, whether they're going to Disneyland, buying a house and the end. 
And for the mortgage brokers, just because they signed the commitment, but we're not done. That just means right. it's just the next step. Because if you've been doing this business for any amount of time, when things go wrong at the lawyer's office, everybody points the finger at everybody else. It's like, wow, that's not my fault. It's like point at the broker, point at the bank, point at the realtor. And so like, it's a gong show. And so like, you have to have a fantastic closing experience if you want to create, I think, a good customer experience as a broker. That's great. So then how do you guys actually avoid it being a black hole when people use it? So what we've created is this is where we use technology. So if you've ordered pizza from Domino's or if you've used Amazon before, you know that they have a dashboard for you. And the dashboard says exactly what's happening. Where's my package? Where's my pizza? We have a dashboard for the broker and your clients that tells you at any given time, in real time, what's going on. Who's working on the file? When's a closing? When is your client signing? The old dreaded have mortgage instructions been received? Has the lawyer been instructed by the lender? And today, most brokers we find are doing this manually. It's a lot of calls back and forth. It's mm -hmm. a lot of emails. If you've got an assistant, your assistant's spending a lot of time essentially babysitting all aspects of the closing and just trying to find out what's going on, and especially when a client calls and says, hey, Scott, what's happening? Are we funding this thing? Am I signing? Yeah. I haven't heard back from the lawyer's office. I haven't heard anything. It puts a lot of brokers in a pretty tough position. And think about all the inefficiencies and the time wasted than trying to find an answer. Multiple emails, voicemails, and calling back the client, getting emails and voicemails on that side. So one thing, one question can literally lead to half a day sometimes of being lost. Right. Right? Yeah. Just knowing what's going on. One of my underwriters many years ago, when I first started being a mortgage broker, she's going to fire me as a broker. She's like, Scott, like, you've heard of the red dot system. Like, no, what's the red dot system? She goes, well, when you have a file, every time you pick it up, you put a red dot on it. And that way, you know how efficient you're being. She was your files. She was me metaphorically because it was all digital. She's like, your files are covered in red dots because you're constantly sending me one thing at a time. It's all over the place. And if you don't get your act together, I'm actually going to cut you off. She was worked at Maple Trust, then Scotiabank. And she's like, I'm going to be done with you even if I like you. I'm like, oh my gosh, so please don't fire me. And so it forced me to become more efficient. So lack of communication creates inefficiency for everybody, the broker, the broker's assistant, the law firm. And so I love that you guys have a dashboard so you can see what's going on. So then it's like there's full transparency, which is super important. And then I also like the fact that, yeah, the communication at each state, you guys are letting me know what's going on. Like there's not like there's a surprise. You know, that's one of the things that I found to be very effective with it. So, okay, the dashboard, anything else? What are the benefits of brokers found with this, brokers and clients? So brokers, the feedback we get is words like wow and amazing from clients and brokers alike, because yeah, technology is a big part of it. So everything we do, you know, revolves around that dashboard and collaboration. It's one point where a broker, your client, even if you're getting a referral from a realtor, you can add your realtors. Think about that as a tool to attract realtors that always ask you, you know, what have you done for me lately, Scott? The realtor can get visibility because everybody has vested interest in that deal closing, right? The other side of it is really having, like you said, you know, communications is like 99% of a great closing experience and, and vice versa. If you don't have the communication, you don't have a great experience. You don't hear, you know, you mm -hmm. get anxiety and, and all that sort of stuff. So for us also having a really, really great knowledgeable team will connect you with a professional real estate lawyer that is done tons of mortgages and real estate transactions. We've got very experienced team of concierges, document support specialists, and they're all attached to this dashboard. So at any time, technology doesn't replace the human touch. So at any time, you, know, you click a button, 
and you want to chat with your lawyer, you want to chat with the law clerk on a file, that is done instantly as well, right? So that quick communication, that uh, rapid response elicits feedback like, wow, and amazing. And, you know, when we talk about that peak end rule that you just brought up, think about it this way. Like you just end your transaction with words like amazing and wow. What does that do in terms of your ability then to generate referrals or testimonials and, you know, really be the talk of the town when it comes to, hey, who should I use for my mortgage, right? Right. Well, I mean, the whole thing that I liked about DJ, we bought some property in March of last year, peak of the market. By the way, I was buying peak of the market. So if you're trying to figure out when you should probably sell, probably when I'm buying is a good time to sell. Also bought in January 2008. In any case, we used Deeded and completely virtual experience. So I, I was sitting there, you know, jumped on a call. It was not Zoom, but like a digital experience. And then like, okay, you need to sign these documents. I'm going to text you a link. And so I got a text to this link, opened up my phone, turned my phone sideways and just signed right on my phone. Like, sitting there right in front of the, it was amazing. I was like, well, that was the easiest thing ever. No, you know, a bunch of paperwork and stuff. It was an amazing experience. And so I totally agree. You got to use the two things there, team and technology. You got to have a great team. So the people that actually deliver the service, and I know that's something you and I are both passionate about. And then you got to embrace technology that actually can make the entire experience better. You do those two things and you can create fantastic, like you say, a great customer experience that will generate more referrals for you. Absolutely. So if somebody listening to this, then is there any other sort of things about like any final thoughts on this? I'll talk about how the people can track you down in a minute here, but any final thoughts on, you know, how mortgage brokers can avoid the black hole for closings? I think obviously the easiest and simple solution is try deeded, right? So, uh, so ultimately it's about partnering with folks that will give you that edge and that visibility that again, gives you not only a great client experience, but what's the value of your time? I think at the end of the day, we're all selling our time and that's always going to be a finite resource. So would you rather spend your time babysitting a closing or would you rather spend your time, you know, recruiting a new referral source or working with a new file or new client? I think we all know the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think that like, the, you know, enhance the transparency for everybody involved, the broker, the realtor, the client is super important. And I'm telling you, once you try the experience, you're like, I'm hooked. I know that we've used you. I've referred a bunch of my friends who are brokers over to you guys. And everybody who's tried it has been convinced that this is just a better closing experience. So if they're listening, go to dita.ca. They can get set up as a broker and you'll just walk them through the whole process. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And then Ruben and his team can help you guys out. And yeah, Ruben, it's always great chatting with you, man. And I'm excited to see you guys continue to grow and, you know, iterate in this new market that we're currently in. It's always amazing being on the show. Thanks again for having me, Scott. All right. Thanks again for listening to this episode. And one quick takeaway for you. If you're a mortgage agent and you're like, man, I need some ideas for my business. I want to work with more financial planners, more realtors, more whatever. Go to I Love Mortgage Broken right now. Stop. Get on a treadmill. Get off the treadmill because you'll fly off the back if you try to type on your phone while you're doing this, unless you're really, you can do two things at once and set up a free account with I Love Mortgage Broken where you can keyword search all hundreds and hundreds of episodes And anytime you type in a keyword, it will show you every single instance where that shows up. And then you can jump to that instance. You can listen to it as well as read the entire script. So if you want scripting, copy, paste, it's powerful. The only tip that I'm going to give you on this is you want to do it on full screen mode because it doesn't work as well on small screen. But hey, it's a ton of data and it's very powerful. Go check it out at ilovemortgagebrokering.com. It's totally free. Thanks again for listening to this episode and I will see you on the next show. 
This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.